Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. We have a bear claw. That sounds like me. You want a bear claw? Yeah, I have a bear claw. Uh, and that leaves... But that's a, is that a bear claw? But, but that's a bear claw. It describes a bear claw right there at uh, Waitrose Patisserie. That's a panache. This is a patisserie called a bear claw. Yes. Can I see it? Is it that? It's that. No, it's that it's one. Oh, my God. Like a Christmas cake. It's frightening. And here you have a I'd choice. I'd be more frightened by a bear with claws like that than I would by a real one. That's horrendous. And here you have a choice okay. uh, between a kind of jammy biscuit or a treacle tart. You cannot go wrong with a jammy biscuit. Look, a little heart in the middle. You shouldn't have. So that leaves me. That's great. I'll go for that. I'll go for that, Fraser. This is very nice. Been, is that okay? Thank you very much. I insisted on bringing, um, bringing cakes. I passed, Fraser, uh, walking down the hallway road, what appears to be filthy McNasty's. Reborn. Uh, yeah. I think it's different people. All right. What, our old local? Yeah. Filthies? Yeah. It's God. an enormous great Van Morrison quote. It has. All right. It's a gig. And it's got a quote outside that says something like, Where are my potted my herrings? Ca- <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're fired. Ah, you're fired. <laughs> Can I have a new manager, please? <laughs> Biff. <laughs> <laughs> it says something like, you know, my kind of intimate... Um, you know, act never worked in these large spaces. You know, this kind of sentiment we're all expected to nod and, and approve of, you know. Don't remind me. Is Van Morrison regularly to be found in the Lexington or, you know... Play? In intimate surroundings. <laughs> in intimate act. We can tell the old harmonica story, no. Um, I don't think he is. He is. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, a Hammersmith Apollo type mm, thing. Mm, mm, true. So, right. here we are, Grant Fraser's table... In Holloway, having I mean, some cakes and some coffee, here to set the world to rights, as usual. We ought to describe Fraser's flat, really. Gone with his MC5 poster on the wall, supported by Clover. Uh, it's got a, what I think is a, is a bowed gimbri. Bought where was it again, Malaysia? Mongolia. Mongolia. That's right. It's got a huge wall of crikey. I stayed in a yurt. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Not a Glastonbury yurt, not a, not a Cornbury no, yurt. authentic yurt. A, a proper a, one. A family of Mongolians. Oh, right. I had camel cheese. Oh, God. I don't recommend it. <laughs> it Fraser's got the biggest television in the world, by the way. It's enormous. It's like being in a sort of a, a private screening uh, theatres. <laughs> yeah, you get into, in, in Wardour Street. You know what I mean? You go and see the new uh, Brad Pitt picture. Except... It's slightly bigger. I'll be coming around later with nibbles. <laughs> you will. <laughs> and look at the box sets. Have you seen that? He's got a whole little copies of Word magazine. God bless him. So I still go. I, I passed this guy on the street yesterday. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> this is exactly what happened. I've got all those. This guy comes to me and says, Hello, mate. I said, Hi. He said, uh, Word, brilliant. Brilliant. My favourite magazine. I never miss one. Brilliant. He said, What's on the next cover? <laughs> <laughs> I said, actually, no, he closed my eyes. I said, oh, actually, I tend to see them in the dentist's waiting room. <laughs> not anymore, you know. No, probably not anymore. No, <laughs> dear, oh, dear. Anyway. So what's new? Oh, biscuits. What's new? Don't know. What's been happening? What's been, what's been on your end? You were telling me that you were watching a TV programme about Muscle Shoals the other Oh, God, that was amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think it's been out for a while, but I've only just seen it, of course. Uh, Mark and I always on the, always, you know, uh, ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. And my, my, key, my key, you know when you watch those programmes, there's always one tiny piece of information that you didn't know and you're rather thrilled you did. My piece of information is, this will thrill nobody apart from me, that Donna Godcho, later of The Grateful Dead, sang backing vocals on When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge. So does she uh, come from Alabama? I, I don't know, that's a good point. She's what is she now, doing down there? Is she dead? She is. Is she both Keith, the, I know Keith is. They both died. Because he's a keyboard player in the Grateful Dead. Died. That's a very um, short-lived... I uh, saw her in the Grateful Dead. Did you? I did. Wembley Stadium. When would that be? Well, Not she was stadium. there in Arena. about 73-ish, 74, 75, somewhere around there, was it, I think? So, this was the documentary that I didn't actually watch, but uh, I was um, on Twitter on the night it was broadcast, and Ian Penman was getting very het up about the fact that it seemed to be impossible to have a rock documentary nowadays that didn't have Bono in it. Is that it? Was Bono in it? Actually, you know, I, 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 I quite like Bono, but I, I, I found him immensely irritating in this. I, I, I'm, I'm sure I may be among friends actually saying this on a word podcast, but I, I just Bono is brought in to make these kind of poetic gestures. He does this whole thing about, you can almost, you know, smell the river, you can taste the ground. And it's all this kind of supercharged prose that he uses. And I, 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 he seemed to be kind of pretty much leading the fray, as if he was almost the kind of, um, your David Attenborough figure guiding you through across the landscape. And I thought we had enough Bono, actually. And also he's wearing his yellow glasses, and I thought it's hard to take him seriously. <laughs> I mean, that's just me, isn't it? Fraser, what do you no, think? Am I, I wrong? Am I wrong? I don't think it's you. Eye condition. Some kind of glasses. Oh, I probably is. It may well be. I feel bad now. Yeah, you should. But I've noticed this. Um, I didn't watch that rock documentary, but I did watch the Ginger Baker one. Have you seen the Ginger? Oh, which is meant to be fantastic. It's, it's really good. And I watched the Nielsen one, which is terrific. And I watched the Tom Dowd one, the oh, Science of Music or whatever it's called. And they all had the same one thing going on in them. Which they ha- which is that they had loads of talking heads crammed together, very often at the beginning of the film, most of whom you'd never seen before, you'd never heard of. And they were very often people from kind of middling heavy metal acts of the 90s, whatever, because they have to get these people in to legitimise their looking at, looking back, at a figure from the past, you know what I mean? So their idea is that to sell a film about Ginger Baker, I have to sell it to distributors who really don't know who Ginger Baker is at all. But they've heard of, you know, Def Leppard or whatever, whatever kind of came after. That's, that's you know precisely it. So they cram these people in, and it drives me yeah. bloody mad. No, but that's how they got the gig in the first place, because you can't present... Exactly, you've got to go there. You can't place. do the subject. So you've heard of Johnny Rotten, right, the Sex Pistols. <laughs> well, he's got some hilarious things to say about Johnny Rotten. Apparently it was quite good old Ginger Baker, because he is old enough to have actually been quite influenced by him. And, you know. Johnny Rotten is, is interesting in the Ginger Baker film, because you think, here is the person in pop who's marginally more nauseating than Ginger <laughs> Baker. Um... You know, what? Ginger Baker's uh, not nauseating. What? No, he's, oh. not, no, he's not nauseating. He's terrifying. <laughs> he's, I had a little he's scramble a bit, with him on, oh, on really? Word magazine. Do you remember that fantastic oh, bust-up? It's the only interview I've ever, ever, I have ever walked out. People have walked out of interviews with me. <laughs> Steve Forbert, 
if you're listening, <laughs> Jack Rabbit Slim. Yeah, you remember Steve? Whatever happened, happened, he walked out of an interview with me Never because again. I went on saying I basically said, "Look, chum, matey, if it hadn't been for Bob Dylan, would there be?" Steve Forbuck, because you're playing acoustic guitar with this sort of monotone kind of wine, and you're playing a little, you know, harmonica in a car, and you got very, very cross. And uh, unsurprisingly, but, no, Gene Baker, I walked out of an interview with him. Go on, what well, was the just what was the straw that broke the camel's back? The straw that broke the camel's back was that I asked him a question, which was, "Why did you move to South Africa?" Which I thought was going to be a bridge into a series of interesting and illuminating, colourful revelations. And he took 15 minutes to answer it. And I know that because I transcribed the tape. And it was just him just being obnoxious, really. Just being, you know, difficult and curmudgeonly. And also he had very bad back pains. I think he had lumbago arthritis or something. And he, had, he was meant to be taking his painkillers. And he'd forgotten to take his painkillers. And he had his two mates with him who were very, very heavy sitting in the room giving me the thousand-yard stare. Um, and, all, you know, and the whole thing was a bit of a nightmare. And also, he, you know, I'd mentioned Jack Bruce. And I've been told, do not mention Jack Bruce, because obviously if you mention Jack Bruce, he will simply hang you by the ankles from a ninth floor, you know, window, then drop you on your head, as would have happened to Fester Bestertester or Carbuncle in a mad magazine cartridge. You remember Fester was, was dropped, and when he hit the ground, his tongue would come out across the road. And then, and then in one strip, sorry, I just remember this, do you remember a whole platoon of soldiers go by and go across Fester's tongue? <laughs> And then just when you think the pain guard gets worse, there's a boing, and this tiny boy on a poco stick lands on the... The song is kind of recoiling like, like, like a worm in agony. But anyway... What so anyway... So, yeah, <laughs> sorry. So I, I mentioned Jack Bruce, and that was terrible, because I, mean, I was a huge admirer of Jack Bruce, and I was a huge admirer of, of, of Ginger, and I'd just been to see them playing a concert, in which they did not look at each other once uh-huh. they were on stage together for nearly two hours and did not exchange one single look. <laughs> so I was told not to mention, and I did, and that went down very badly. So there we are. And so I, you, I wouldn't you, say you, with the kind of what you described as was he saying, turned on your heel and left. Did you? I just said, you know, I can't be bothered with this because he was just being a pain, really. And I just got up and walked out. And then when I, I, I got back to the word office, I remember this, and I, I started telling this story about a month later when I fully when I got over it. I just thought it was an absolute waste of time. And everybody in the word office thought it was very, very funny. And they said, this is absolutely hilarious. Why don't you transcribe it? And maybe it'll be good. When I transcribed it, I thought I'd write it up. But it was actually quite entertaining. The film starts with, uh, with the, the young filmmaker going to visit Ginger at his, uh, at his ranch in South Africa, doesn't it? Yeah. And, um, and Beware of Mr Baker. The beware of Mr Baker, which is, of course, the name of the film. Yeah. And he actually physically attacks the young filmmaker. Why? Where, well, because he was largely because he was um, setting out to interview loads of other people in the film. That Ginger felt that it was a, a gross distortion of the truth of Ginger Baker to have anybody involved in telling the story of Ginger Baker well, so apart from you, Ginger Baker. If you went to Jack Bruce, you might get a slightly, uh, 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 you know, Jack, negative viewpoint. Jack is in the film and he's perfectly nice about him, isn't it? Everybody. You get the feeling that Ginger Baker only wants to talk about drumming. Nothing else is. He doesn't, so he doesn't want to talk about himself or he doesn't want other people to talk about him. Do you think, Ginger Baker, do you think underneath it all, though, it's, it's perfectly possible that you can be this fantastically charismatic, hugely memorable figure in the history of rock and also be a bit of a bore? <laughs> Maybe. He's boring, Ginger Baker. You know, if you were stuck in the pub with Ginger Baker, you'd shoot yourself. You'd play quicker. <laughs> <laughs> But he's not, he's, to, he's not boring to drummers, though, is he, you see? He's not, he's not boring to drummers. If you, you know, drummers think that... I mean, they, he's never off the front of drumming magazines talking about uh, the history uh, of timpani. How many drumming magazines? I don't know, but they still go there. Anyway. Whenever I see a drumming magazine, <laughs> Ginger's boat is on the front of it. But it's an extraordinary tale of how a man kind of blundered into this, this kind of celebrity in the late 60s and how it kind of... It kind of twisted and destroyed nearly everybody around him. Including his family. His family! In what way his family? I watch rock documentaries nowadays, and I'm no longer interested in the person that the film is about, but I'm really interested in their families. You know, as as I get older, i got more and more time for those people, the so-called little people, who had to exist in the wake of these... People who are utterly consumed by their careers, you know what I mean? In a way that is that makes kind of 
Gordon Gecko out of Wall Street looked like a pussycat, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's all that, all that drove these people for 40 years, is the desire to maintain their career. And so in the Ginger Baker film, you have his poor first wife, don't you? Or is he, oh, his second wife, I can't remember, Fraser. I don't remember. You have ver- a variety of children. Well, the, 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 the son who's the drummer is the interesting one. Because oh. there's this great uh, clip where the two of them are drumming side by side and looking at each other, and you can sense the love that's going on for that particular moment. And the rest of the time, they can't stand themselves. Oh, it just... I mean, basically, you know, these children actually say, I'm sorry, you know, if you... If your life is ever recorded on celluloid, Mark, and you have one of your children saying, he really didn't want us, I don't think you've succeeded in life. <laughs> oh, my yeah. Lord. I don't th- did he have executive edit over this where he could decide what went did and what didn't? I, I mean, don't think he'd be bothered, frankly, Christ. at all. Well, know? have you ever seen the Bob Marley documentary that came out two or three years ago? I have. I think we might have even talked about that on the podcast. I can't remember, but there's a bit in that where uh, Fraser's phone goes... <laughs> Where Fraser's phone goes, it's our lawyer's thing. Don't think for God's sake mention the Bob Marley documentary, whatever you do. All the communications where um, uh, Marley's daughter, as you know, Marley had 11 children by eight eight different women, I think, and one of Marley's daughters talks about it. It was really interesting, actually, because you suddenly see him as a parent. And I'd never thought he was a parent before. I'd only seen him as the Rasta Godhead himself, you know. And she says, You used to say to people, Would you like to come over and have a sleepover at my house? And none of her friends were allowed to go over and have a sleepover at the Marley house because they thought it was going to be full of people smoking massive quantities of bales, <laughs> great stacks, sheaves of marijuana. <laughs> and it's going to be full of quite lax behaviour and probably kind of low morals. I don't know where they would have got that idea from. <laughs> but anyway, anyway. And she, can you imagine what it was like? So, so you're, that's your dad. So to everyone else, it's the coolest dad in the world. To you, it's a nightmare. It's a pain in the Absolutely. He's never there. and He's always got some bird in his arm, and he's just out, out of his head the whole time. So the film... So he's not going to help you with the GCSE revision, is he? The film you've got to see is... and he, I think it came out a few years ago, but I only just got around to seeing it. Is Who is Harry Nilsson, and why is everybody talking about him? Which, uh, you know, is, is a bit similar to the Ginger Baker film in some ways, because it starts off with loads of... Famous people, you know, Robin Williams and Eric Idle and, you know, Terry Gilliam or whatever. Saying, of course, you say to most people Harry Nilsson and they'd never heard of him. And I'm sitting there thinking, who are these morons who've never heard of Harry Nilsson, for God's sake? Well, that's the great cinema audience, you know what I mean? Yeah. You have to, you have to start, assume no knowledge whatsoever. But uh, you have Harry Nilsson's career and his disastrous personal life, <laughs> Succession of awful marriages and descent into drugs and alcohol, you know, like like you wouldn't believe. Never happened before in the entertainment business. But here's the amazing thing. It has one huge twist, which is, and this must have been, I don't know, in the 80s or something. He shot his whole career. He shot his voice. All he has is an appalling drink problem. And he blunders late at night into an ice cream parlour while drunk as a skunk and behind the counter is a 19-year-old Irish exchange student, very pretty young woman, and he says, she's no idea who he is, he says, you have the most beautiful eyes I've ever seen. (laughs) He's never said that before. (laughs) I'll try that. Don't try this out. Uh, she said, I'll give you a double scoop for free. Yeah. <laughs> and she somehow says to him, well, you know, if you, want to be, if you want to be a suitor of mine, go away and sort yourself out, you know. So he goes back to the hotel. How old is he at this stage? 50s? 50s? 40s, 50s. Well, okay. He's a middle-aged man. Yeah. With a, you know, bunch of bad marriages behind him. All yeah, yeah. He kind of sorts himself out. I wouldn't say he cleans up in terms of drunk, uh, drugs and drink, but he, he sorts himself out. He returns there with a load of flowers for this young woman, and he woos her. He woos her so successfully that they get married. And their marriage is so successful, they have, I think, five children. Oh, my God. Five children who are pretty much all on this film... And he didn't live all that long after that, you know, because he'd he just done so, so much damage to himself. But they all are on this film talking about how they loved him and what a wonderful father he was. You know what I mean? And so he had this late, extraordinary 
Indian summer Isn't that of his life. Absolutely it's rather a really moving thing. Yeah, because most people just do not learn from their mistakes, or if they do, they haven't got time to rectify them, because it's too late. But he did. But I'd, actually, Rod Stewart, very interesting. Rod Stewart, I think has eight... Has he got eight kids, is it? I think oh, probably. So. Yeah, he had one when he was, oh, I don't know, 17. Oh, yes, he did. He did. So he got eight. And I occasionally see pictures of Rod Stewart with all eight of his, 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 um, his children. God knows how many grandchildren he's got there. But to be fair, all of them... I mean, I know he's a frightful old rascal and all that, but, you know, and he has got the advantage of enormous wealth. Um, but But... They're all very fond of him. And all, all the ex-wives, there's a bit of a first wives club or second wives club, but they're just a club anyway. And they don't seem to mind. You know, everyone seems to get along. And I give them a few points for that. Oh, a lot Because, I mean, points. you know, there's, there's an awful lot of, um, a lot of kind of, you know, below-the-radar misery going on, I think, sometimes, behind certain people you see on, the, uh, you know, on stage in terms of their personal lives. And I think he's done all right. Actually. Whereas Ginger's, one of Ginger's marriages, going back to the Ginger Bake film, doesn't he, he run away with... The sister of his daughter's boyfriend, isn't that right? Yeah, God, he does. Sister. Of so imagine this: yeah. you've got a daughter who, at the time, is it's like a quiet 21. Christmas, isn't it? It's a very quiet Christmas. <laughs> Daughter's about twenty. Well, turkey, uncle. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And you know, oh, you're not here. And at some family party, you, you know, meet my husband, my boyfriend. <laughs> and this is his sister. Oh, oh fancy you, dear. Yeah. And she runs away with him, and finds that. He's, he's rebuilt his life on the top of a mountain in Italy, hasn't he? But, but here's, the main, here's the main problem with his, his life of retired superstardom. He has no money whatsoever, does he? And he has horses. <laughs> he has polo ponies. He's obliged to freight everywhere he goes. Yeah. Yes! Madness! Absolutely. And also, the drugs. Oh, sorry, but the drugs. Oh, God. You know, he was addicted to heroin for 27 years. And this is a big part of my conversation with him because I was quite interested in this, really. And of course, he's a jazzer. Him and Jack are from a generation there. You know, they were in jazz bands and they were playing around Soho. And he told me that they'd formed what they thought was the Ornette Coleman Trio with Eric Clapton. Oh, all that cream, but they never told him that he was all that cream. So they were just improvising wildly. He was trying to play some, you know, stuff in four four, and you know, it's really fascinating. But the drugs. I mean, he told me stories about, you know, about just ODing in lavatories at the BBC. You know, he always talk about a, 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 a syringe full of heroin as works. Do you remember that? <laughs> he used to impersonate with the wheel. He said, I, I said, I didn't play very well that night. I just had a works. <laughs> He's like, oh, Christ, you know. It was just appalling. But, uh, yeah. Hardcore. I mean, that's not a load of gap year students, you know, putting the skins together in Goa. That is 27 years on the works. So, talking of the family thing, I've, uh, I've read Ben Watts' extraordinary book, Romany and Tom. Oh, I, I just read, read an extra. I read an extra in the Guardian. So it was terrific. It's absolutely brilliant. It's the story of his parents, um, who were um, mother was was a kind of magazine journalist, and slightly grand, kind of you know mother kept going away to interview but you Richard meet, Burton. You, you get a flash of them, don't you? In Tracy Thorne's book, you do. I'm sure a lot of people listening would have read that. Tracy Thorne's written a terrific book. It's a lovely bit where she's she's a sorry to but she's at college. Really? She's her first uh, day at college, which is where I think she meets. Ben, I think pretty much her first night at university. It's a magical story, actually. And uh, she's around. Her mum and dad dropped her off, I think, with sort of, I don't know, some twiglets and maybe a little box of Jaffa cake. Duvet in the back of duvet. And they brought along the teddy, but she's a bit embarrassed. Yeah, you know, <laughs> been there. yeah and she's got a scatter cushion and all that, so she's quite excited, you know, being called. And he arrives. He's, he's been driven up by his father in an open-top car. Oh, and they've been list, listening to John Coltrane, if I remember rightly, played very loudly. And they've been smoking a jummy, sharing weed on the way up and so the difference in that it's a brilliant physical image of these two people from very different backgrounds yeah because she came colliding from Brookman's at Park in North London be more which, is, which is very Couldn't standard suburban. and he's from what we would call Barnes. boho background well he was Barnes is where he was brought up you know, oh right was he around there wow you know? yeah kind of, I didn't know that which yeah. is still pretty uh, it's quite hip now I suppose, so. I suppose yeah. so and it's just an amazing tale because so mother's a, a magazine journalist and dad is a Scottish jazzer uh, you know, instrumentalist, arranger, composer, and so forth, who in the 50s and 60s was, you know, identified as a chap who was going to go far. You know, and going to make a good living out of doing this kind of thing. And then, bad news, 1963, along come the Beatles. And there's, there's no longer any work for, you know, jazz arrangers and composers and so forth. And so he he slowly falls into a, into a kind of bitter depression, 
um, which he deals with, he medicates. He self-medicates. With alcohol. Vigorously, that's right. And, and then, to kind of compound his bitterness, many years later, his son becomes quite successful. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, you know, of course, I didn't think of that dynamic. Of course, because his son achieves all the things that he... Oh, good Lord. And uh, it's an absolutely amazing story. And, you know, I'm not just saying this. It's brilliantly told. Yeah. He's a fantastic writer, Ben Watt. Um, and uh, Well, he's a fantastic lyric writer, actually. Well, Great yeah. storyteller. In his but I tell you, this is a really, really well-written book. Uh, you know, and I read it, and, and my wife, who hasn't didn't know the first thing about Ben, ben Watt or Everything But The Girl or anything at all like that, and read it and thought it was absolutely brilliant. And I, I kind of... I emailed Ben Watt because he's doing the next Word In Your Ear on, on March 28th, and um, I said, and my wife read it, and she thinks it's brilliant, and she doesn't know who you are. Well, that's the test. That's, that's the test. Which I thought was the test. Yeah. And he goes, well, you shouldn't have to, really, you know. Which I thought... All right, fair enough. Absolutely. But you know what I mean? That's that's a test of how good Absolutely. a book is like that. The but also, it's, I don't think it's so indicative of just getting older. I, I, I used to, when I was a kid, I just never, I, I used to see things at just a face value. You know, I, I just, you, you never thought, who, where do these people come from? No. You know, I can remember when I was at college, I went out with a girl who, who you know, whose dad had died when she was, her mum had died when she was 12, and her dad died when she was 23. She was an orphan when she was 23, you know. I, I don't think I, I mean, I must have taken her for a drink and, you know, tried to cheer her up, but I don't think I ever sat there and thought, my God, imagine, imagine that. No, that. Pa- no parents when you're 23 years old, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I feel the same way about these musicians, you know. I used to look at these musicians, just, there they were, they were just people who appeared in, in the Melody Maker or the New Musical Express. And, I, you know, once you understood where they came from and who their parents were, that's the first question I ask anybody now, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And in interviews, when I do interviews, I immediately go back and say, brothers, sisters, you know, parents, you know, where, where, where did you come what, what education, you know, all those things. It's so incredible. It is. Because it's the stuff that, that formed them before they could form anything about themselves. You know, because everything else in a, in a musician's persona... They invented themselves when they were about yeah. 23 years old. Yeah. <laughs> they got the opportunity to start again in the way that most of us don't. But, but the stuff before they were 23... Completely. ...is the stuff that they couldn't, they couldn't form at all. You know? It's Johnny Rotten and Van de Graaff Generator. Johnny Rotten's favourite group was Van de Graaff Generator. And, and, and McLaren, and he had really violent uh, arguments about how they were going to present themselves to the press. So you cannot mention... Van de Graaff Generator. The Word Podcast. It passes the time. So, Mark, you went to Marrakesh. Oh, I did go to Marrakesh. Yes, yes. I, I went How to come? I went there because I, I was very keen to have five days off, actually. I've been a massive, great writing project, which I'd finished. I thought, I'm going to go off and just do that. I got a, a job to write. A what have you been writing, travel. Mark? <laughs> <laughs> what have you been writing? It's very sweet. It's a sonnet. It's a haiku. It's a, it's a finely chiselled single haiku that's taken me nine months to write. <laughs> Which everybody who knows you wouldn't find it surprising runs. at all. It's pretty good stuff. No, I have been writing. I've been writing a book, actually. A booky wook. And, uh, which I've just finished. But anyway, when I was finishing that, they give you a week between handing in the book and uh, legal and copy edit. And I thought, I can't... Well, they give you a week off. A week off, yeah, a week off. So a week off before you start to go back and look at the book again. I thought, oh, God, I can't face this. I'm going to go, go off and, you know, just go somewhere. So I got a job writing a couple of travel pieces. And one was, uh, one was a piece about Marrakesh. Uh, the basic headline of that is that Marrakesh is Dickens' London, only with live cobras and incense, because it's just an outrageous place. And the other one was the, the Jimi Hendrix Trail. Do you know about the Jimi Hendrix Trail? It's fantastic. <laughs> it's just brilliant. The basic story, you know how you get in... Um, well, it's just the, the, the general uh, you know, apocrypha of life, isn't it? But particularly in the travel industry, if some famous person ever alights on the lily pad of some local, <laughs> they will hammer the commercial value of this to death, <laughs> won't they? Well, I, there is no greater example on God's earth than Jimi Hendrix and, and, and Morocco, because the truth is that I mean, the legend of Hendrix in Morocco is that, is that le- he went there several times, at one point spent three months there, he, um, he arrived by private jet, he uh, spent $20,000 on rugs and uh, lamps, 
He fathered several children. He gave a series of concerts. Um, if he must have, yes, his confusion was to father a lot of children. He's, um, you know, judging by the number of restaurants, hotels, uh, cafes, and guitar shops that claim to have enjoyed his patronage, he must have really put himself about. The honest truth is, I don't think he was there for. I might, and it's very hard to research this, but I think he was there for about four days in the middle of 1969. He arrived on a commercial flight from Paris to Marrakesh, and he hired a little driver in a car. He had two male friends with him, and they went down to Essaouira. Now, I went down to Essaouira to do the Hendrix Trail, and the only piece of information available is that Hendrix is absolutely concrete. And the other great bit of information, of course, is that the, the, the legend is that he wrote um, Castles Made of Sand. Oh, right. um, after his trip to Essaouira, anyone listening who's been to Essaouira will know that the ruins of the rampart, the ancient fort, is there at an extraordinary angle, 45-degree angle, in the, in the high tide. You can see this thing, and, and that was what it was. Well, this is just the purest extract of bollocks, because <laughs> that record actually came out, I think, on, on 1967. It did, and this yes. is 1969. <laughs> so on every level, it's just absolutely all shit. But anyway, so I go there, and I thought, well, I'll go to the hotel. There's, Let there's me guess, Fraser. He didn't, he didn't call the magazine back and say, there's no story here. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was my, it was my suggestion, because it'll be good fun. <laughs> see, there's no story, it's funny anyway. So I got to the Hotel Dezil, where he actually stayed, which is just outside the old ramparts at Essaouira. So I go there the first morning. I go down. So, so I said, right. So in my haltering French, which isn't very good because everyone speaks French there, I said, to, you know, basically, ooh, um, uh, Jimi Hendrix. You know, <laughs> absolute blank look. The first three members of staff have never heard of Jimi Hendrix. And I'm staying in the hotel where he stayed. And the fourth one has heard of him, but thinks he stayed in a place called Diabat. Which Diabat's about five miles away, so I, I trek over to Diabat. And it's just absolutely fantastic. So you've, got, you've got two rival concerns. Right, one is the um, is the hotel Jimi Hendrix, and the other one is the cafe restaurant Jimmy, and they <laughs> they are pretty low level organisations. And at least the hotel is run by the fabulous um, kind of Swedish hippie girl, Swiss hippie girl rather, in her in her kind of her late fifties, and she's she's at least she's on the case with Hendrix, you know. And it's everywhere you look are tremendous old sort of stoners, basically from Holland, you know, who've come over and they just want to feel they want to be around the guttering flame of yeah. Hendrix and they want to smoke some uh, relaxants that are still available in the streets of Esquire. I was rather thrilled the moment I walked through the ramparts, somebody came and said, you want some hashish, my friend? I thought, the old magic's still going on. <laughs> this is brilliant. People still, people still stop in the street and ask they want to buy hash. This is great, you know. And uh, I, I rang home and told my wife that. I said, you haven't bought any, have you? <laughs> Yes, yeah, in, in my baggage. Yes, yes, yes. My, yeah, I'll, I'll get some back through customs, you know. But anyway, so we got there. It was fantastic. And just opposite the hotel is the Sultan's Palace, where supposedly Hendrix played his concert. There is no evidence he ever played um, a concert in the Sultan's Palace. And if he did, uh, you know, what, what happened to the Sultan's Palace? The volume was clearly so extreme, this place was reduced to a pile of rubble, <laughs> outside of which, uh, mostly two or three camels were grazing when I took a picture. So it made quite a nice picture. But there's clearly not much evidence for any of this, you know. And the Cafe Jimmy is honestly one of the funny things I've ever seen in my life. It's owned by a, run by a very, very curmudgeon, very cantankerous uh, Arab uh, individual in his late 60s, you know. I t- uh, we turned up to a couple of pictures because outside there were some pictures of, supposedly, of Hendrix painted on the wall. I thought they were James Brown. <laughs> And I thought the other one was, 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 was Bob Marley. I had absolutely no idea. He <laughs> then said, the Cafe Hendrix. And then it has a big legend saying, Castles, I think it says Castle in the Sand. That's not even the name That's of the song. The lyric. So my question to you is, anyway, I went in there, I took a couple of pictures. This guy immediately tries to extort money from me. Yeah, for going in there and taking a picture of his place to publicise his, you know, it's absolutely astonishing. But my question to you is, is what has, I suppose it's probably the legend of Hendrix and the fact it's in a hot place, what has legitimised that? Because here's my, here's, my, here's my point. If you and I started a, a, a cafe in Liverpool tomorrow called the Cafe John Lennon, do you know what I mean? Lennon Bistro, or, you know, they call it, um, you know, I don't know, Strawberry Lane Forever or something, or we call it, you know what I mean? We got some, we got some title of one of his songs, Magnificently Wrong, and painted it wrongly on the wall, and, you know, had pictures of John Lennon that made him look like Charlie Watts or something. Do you know what I mean? And the whole thing was obviously a bit cobbled together. We didn't, we were rather aggressive as well. We didn't really subscribe to the, you know, peace and love propaganda of, uh, of uh, the CSH and profit we're meant to be celebrating. 
how much custom would we get? <laughs> and how long would our cafe last before people, in Liverpool, people no. threw breeze blocks through the front fucking window? Seriously. Yeah, but, <laughs> but not, in, not out there. No, because I think a lot of it's to do with the fact that it's a hot place. Isn't it? It's the desert. People can't be bothered. You know, you can't be asked. You got, I got out of there. I said, I can't be asked. I got out of there. This is great. I'm quite happy. I sat around and said, maybe he played someone near here. Maybe he didn't. I'm going to have another mint tea. You I'm see, having a lovely time. You see, I'm saying if Jimi Hendrix went there for four days in what year? It's 69. 69. I'm saying if any rock star goes to any place for four days, they're asleep for two of them, aren't they? Yeah. I, they're having sex for, for one of them. Well, if they're not, they're yes. not doing their job. <laughs> That's a dereliction of duty, Dave. They've let themselves down. So the idea that they could kind of knock around and play loads of gigs and, you know, kind of and visit loads of locations, it just doesn't wash at all, does no, it? No, it doesn't. But I just love the idea that everywhere you go, this is in Marrakesh too, to some extent, but certainly in Asawira, you know, you do these little guitar shops and cafes, it's all the so-and-so Hendrix, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I suppose you could say exactly the same about, you know, I don't know, the number of... Well, it's, it's like Memphis, Tennessee that I mentioned yeah. before on, the, you know, on this podcast, that if you go to Memphis, Tennessee, you are regularly introduced to the actual mixing desk from Stack Studios. Or the actual microphone into which Elvis Presley sang, you know... That's right. Uh, you know, his, his early tunes. It's like fragments of the true well, cross. Uh, exact, exactly like that. Elvis must have had like... a different microphone every ten minutes, you know, on the it's hour, the every industry. hour, for months to, have, to produce this forest of technology. Game. It's what keeps I it going. No, I couldn't blame them. I mean, the honest truth is that if people are gullible enough and suggestible enough to want to believe that Jimmy Hendrix once, you know, played, you know, voodoo child... You know, twenty, you know, hundred yards from this particular spot, beneath a, you know, blanket of stars. Then why shouldn't they take the money off them? Really? No, no. Do you think? I mean, it's just, it's just, you know. So, where have you been, Fraser, since we last um, Uh, met? It's Christmas in New Zealand, which was lovely. Family Christmas. What was that? Fraser? Who is that? Is that talking, that talking clock? That's a talking uh, bunny rabbit thing. You're a talking bunny rabbit. Leave that here. There's plenty of friends that talking bunny here, that everybody. Shade, Fraser. Fraser. Where the bunny rabbit just lit up. It's lit up. Look, it's got a kind of pink light, like a dialect. <laughs> it's like a bunny that looks like a dialect. Yes. Anyway, when do you get next New Zealand at Christmas? Uh, then a week in uh, China on the way home. A week in China, Mark. <laughs> Included a day trip to North Korea. A day trip to North Korea. Yeah. In at eight o'clock in the morning, out by four eight four p.m. And what did you what did you pick up on this this most recent trip to the um, so-called Democratic Republic? I went to a kindergarten, which was uh, very interesting. Very uh, young children playing drums and xylophones and uh, juggling whilst unicycling. <laughs> How old? Six. Sounds like Chiswick. Sounds like yeah. the Montessori. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. So that was fun, was it? It was. The, the weirdest part was I had a, a very strange lunch in a kind of underground bunker without any windows with the two female tour guides and four female waitresses. So there's seven of us in a room. And the minute the meal is over, we have to do karaoke. It's obligatory. You're, you're expected to do this. And they sing their patriotic and romantic songs. And then I'm expected to sing. And of course, there's no Western music on the karaoke machine. There's no lyrics to anything, so I, I do uh, Yesterday by the Beatles, which I assume they would have heard of, and they haven't. I sing it unaccompanied, no music. I'm going to say. always rattling around in a concrete room. You know, I heard Yesterday. Never heard Yesterday, never heard of the Beatles. You could have told them that you'd written that song. I could have they would been really impressed. Made a bit of cash. I, must have, I must have told you about... Uh, sorry, I must have bored you with this story in the past. When I was in Ethiopia a few years ago, and I was being taken around by a really nice uh, um, guide called Bizrat, who was, spoke excellent English and, you know, was very worldly and outward-looking and so forth. And as we were driving across Tigray, nothing else to entertain you, you just have to make conversation for hours, you know, in, the, in this kind of bleak moonscape. And, uh, and I mentioned Elvis Presley. And he said, who's Elvis Presley? Good Lord. Now you try that. Good Lord. You try explaining Elvis Presley as a fresh concept to somebody you'd never heard of him. Heard of James Brown, obviously. Heard of Michael Jackson. Heard of the Beatles, I think. Hadn't heard of Elvis Presley. It's, it's a long hard. time ago, you know. Really. No, it is. It's also quite hard to explain the concept of Elvis Presley without either, either A, impersonating his voice, yes. or, or B, doing one of his, his uh, dance routines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's such a physical thing, isn't uh, he? You can't hear or see him, you know. Uh, it's, it's very weird. God, that's odd. So I've got to tell you about... I went to see Bob Dylan. 
Oh, so did I. And the album, was the album I was nearer than you. You were, were, you, were, you were the second row, wasn't you? I was effectively on stage. Yeah, you were. No, I, I think I saw <laughs> you. I was, I over, saw you I was over to one side uh, with uh, Nick Stewart, who very kindly took me. The captain. This, the captain. Yeah, lovely chap. And got this fantastic seat where we're so close to, to Bob Dylan. He must have been acutely aware. You know, you could, you know, you know this dizzy guy, the old green whistle test. <laughs> Nick Kershaw. Guys, <laughs> Mark Allen. <laughs> and uh, you know what the Albert Hall's like? That I've always had the feeling in the Albert Hall that that the performer can see you almost as well as you can see the performer. Yeah, the lighting's you know, very high. Just the lighting, front, yeah, lighting. Yeah. It's like a big living room. You it know? is. And um, the thing I wanted to mention was it was, it was the usual... <laughs> extraordinary show you know very very kind of tight in all sorts of ways you know did the show did an intermission came back did another half did a load of encores and then at the end the curtain call did you see the yeah, curtain he's done call? that for a while you mean when they stand together this is just yeah, so here he is how many people are the band mark about five? seven is it seven or oh, six yeah. and six now. yeah okay so there's six in the band and there's him yeah I think it's six in total. But okay, yeah, six in total. Yeah. So six guys stand in the middle of the Albert Hall stage. Six guys in their 60s and 70s, yeah? Yeah. Uh, they've laid down their guitars, their instruments. They come round from the back of the drum kit, the keyboards and all that. They stand in the middle of the stage. They don't put their arms around each other as bands traditionally do when they stand there to take, you know... I can't imagine anybody ever put their arm around Bob Dylan. No, ever. A damn towel. <laughs> they stand there with their hands by their sides and their feet planted quite wide apart. That's right. And they just look out at the audience. Oh, they don't as bow. The audience applauds. They don't move. They, do they don't bow. It's extraordinary. They don't move. They don't smile. Yeah. They don't achieve any kind of contact with each other at all. Yeah. And ever since this concert, I've been haunted by this idea. And I think this is the single most staged thing I've ever seen by a musical act. That's very good. Because That's very good. it can't be anything else. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You know, if you're going to get six people to do that, there's only one way to achieve it, which is to announce that that's what you're going to do. But also, how do they... How, who controls that? Because I've watched that uh, escapade several times, and they start at the same time, and at an invisible signal, they stop. So somebody is saying, someone's saying, okay, is it Bob? Somebody. Who, somebody's saying, right, that's it, because they all stop exactly at the same time. Because it's kind of like, it's a theatrical device, really. It's what you see in theatre, except in theatre, they hold hands and they bow, don't they? And yeah. then they occasionally point at the you know, author or, or whatever, or the director. But it's the idea that you all stand there with no instruments, you know. But it's it's completely they're kind of it's metronomic as well as they, they, they look like a kind of um, they look like a kind of crew of elderly gunfighters in a western movie. That's right. But they don't have the weapons. There. Yeah. You know, it's a completely gunfighter yeah. pose. Yeah. And they must whatever you know you know however is however long his never ending tour goes on for, they must be doing that every night. They do somewhere you know? every night. And I just, I just can't get over it, you know. And but it, it's, I think it's in keeping with the old show, because I thought that show was really good, actually. And you know, yeah. I've had my criticisms in the past. I'm sure we all have with, with dear old Bob. But I, I thought it was good. And I think one of the reasons I liked it was that he now operates in one kind of emotional gear, if it makes any sense. The show starts, and it runs on, as you say, for about, I don't know, 20 minutes. There's an intermission, isn't there? There's no sport. Huh? Well, come on, it was all over about. I was nine. Oh, yes, <laughs> good idea. But anyway, it doesn't really change in tempo and in atmosphere and in gear. It keeps, it's like a huge chunk of what they would say in, in the movie world of Atmos. He's it's playing like atmosphere. It's one long single. It's one long, it's like, yeah, and they're all very uh, different records a lot of the time, but they've all been sort of merged into a particular type of performance that makes them sound very similar. And in a weird way, I find it rather kind of relaxing. <laughs> because because most, most concerts are all constructed around the idea of huge highs and, you know, yes. they're storyboarded is the word I'm yeah, looking for. Yeah. Whether they're Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band or whether they're Radiohead or whether they're Decemberists, you know, there's going to be balladry, there's going to be, you know, some intermission, whether it's just an instrumental or something, and then it's going to be this enormously 
uh, overcooked moment of melodrama. And it wasn't like that at all. It was just them footling along and then ending in that extraordinary robotic silence. It was extraordinary. I thought it was amazing, actually. Because he walks like a, he walks like a puppet, doesn't he? Yeah, it's as if it's, there is a string somewhere, you know, Absolutely. going down his spine. Yeah, he looks like his knees are going to bend the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> it's an extraordinary thing. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. So, Mark, your book, your book, <laughs> your little book, Dave, Dave, you are your little very book. nice. <laughs> Mention my book. I'm, I'm, remind, I'm reminded of. Did you ever see? Sorry, just before you go any further. Did you ever see that when Dame Edna Everidge, an audience with you? Yeah, 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 I did. Celebrity studded the uh, yeah. star studded audience, where he picks out Melvin Brett. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> says little, little Melvin. Little Melvin over here. <laughs> little Melvin's written lots of books. Pause. Has anybody read Has anyone one? Read one? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, sorry. Oh, Go on. No, no, no. Well, well, yeah, it's coming out. I think it's coming out on the twelfth, twelfth, twelfth. It's coming out on the twelfth of May, which we're we're, we're marking it. with a word in your ear. Very exciting. Uh, sold out already. Know, sadly, exactly. that's but exciting. we're doing one uh, the following week. Yeah, brilliant. Which may be sold out by the time we finish doing Fantastic. this. Anyway, go on. Oh, great. Well, no. So uh, no, I've written a book. I've written a book. And, I mean, the, the honest truth is that the book is, as the cover will reveal, the book is about music. So it's about music, and it has various themes. Um, you know, one of them is the evolution of music itself, and one of them is, I suppose, the evolution of the technologies on which we play music, and one is the evolution of the media which covered music, which becomes the backdrop of the book. Obviously, by the time I'm 22 or something, I'm working at Record Mirror. Up till then, it's just my own life, and, and what, what music is, you know, accompanies... You know, it's about it's. I mean, this is not an analytical rock critic book. I'm not sitting up there. There's a surprise. You know, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's a very very anecdotal. It's a real life book, and so you get you get universal moments. So I hope the universal. Anyway, there's one bit where I go to a dance in 1969 in Dogmersfield. It's in what? where Dogmersfield? What Dogmersfield's in Surrey, where mm-hmm. I come from. Dogmersfield, no, no. And it's describing. And I don't think you have to be the age that I was then. I don't know, 1967, when I was whatever it was, I don't know, 50 or 16 about this dance. It's you can apply that to your own life. What's your equivalent of, of that experience? What was the music you were listening to? And in my case, you know, obviously it's this ghastly kind of thing with, you know, with some very very cheap stroboscope. Somebody's uncle sort of playing, you know, Gary. Pluck it in the Union Jack. What do they call the Union Jack? Union I remember Gap. that. Union Gap. You know, and Moany Moany by the Shirelles. Oh, I like Shondells. Shondells. We're doing well here, aren't we? <laughs> Sub. 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 You see how memorable I found those records. But anyway, so there are universal moments. There's a bit where we stay up all, all night. Um, you know, me and a load of pals. Listen, trying to understand the meaning of life listening to a certain record and arguing about the lyrics. So it's all that kind of stuff. And then you get to my professional life. And um, what did you, you see, do you see what I do for a living? <laughs> Was it indeed work? Then you see the whole thing from the backdrop of Record Mirror and the New Musical Express, where I was for about two years, and then uh, um, the New Music News and uh, Smash Hits and Q and all that. And then Radio 1. There's a lot about Radio 1 where I worked for a while and, and, uh, and a teleprogram. I was on with some old tougher used to wear a Boz Gags t-shirt. I can't remember his fucking name now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Andy Kershaw. And all that. And Live Aid, of course, Dave. You and I, actually, you're in the, annoyingly, you're in this book quite a lot. There's 49 pictures and you're in six of them. Oh, Christ. Yeah. Fraser's in one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fraser's in one too. So anyway, that's the long and short of it, and it's uh, and it has all sorts of other um, strands going through it, and but that's the broad trajectory of the book. So are you going to be touring it, Mark? Yes, yeah, yeah, gigging yeah. behind well, the hard, book. My wonderful publishers are, are really are making me work very very hard, which I'm thrilled about. So I'm doing, um, I think I'm booked for eleven festivals already. Oh really? And various press events. That's no, proper tour. I mean, you know, we go to we do Pyramid uh, you know, Manchester, I think, one night, and then we go to Liverpool the same evening, and then it's off to an Irish literary festival the next morning, and then uh, you know, back to somewhere else. And it's great. No, it's proper tour. Proper tour. Gig hotel gig. Gig hotel gig. It's great. I'm really <laughs> pleased. I'm, I'm so I'm so pleased that they're up for you know promoting it so good. Very good. Our... We look forward to it. Thank Thank you you. So much. The word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. Since since we last met round these microphones, we've been to the Shetland Islands, haven't we? Oh God, that was in when was it? In August. That was in August, August. August. Yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, which was our whenever there's bad uh, weather, uh, viewers. Dave and I exchange a flurry of uh, amused texts <laughs> to each other, trying to imagine if the weather's bad here. 
you know, in North London or, 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 in, or in Chiswick, what the hell is it like? like in Chiswick? Chiswick. We went to the Shetland Islands, and I, apart from my trip back from Marrakesh, where, where I heard something uh, as we came into, uh, into Gatwick that, uh, from the pilot over the intercom, which I don't want to hear again, the pilot said, we're on a go-around for another try. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. You tell me about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. This Kate, is only as very windy. The other way of the word parish was coming in from Sweden, where she'd been interviewing Naina Cherry. Half an hour later, to exactly the same airport Gatwick and they went round three times and then they were sent to Amsterdam where she remained for 24 hours so we got off lightly and she said there were people and people were screaming you know, I they, bet they, were, they weren't screaming at us but they, but you know, it went very quiet it was that kind of nervous laughter because it's horrible because the plane so comes we, down so were you pretty much down we were almost down and what actually happened was I mean this was a Friday about I don't know three weeks ago and I'm sure people will remember it actually it was just an absolutely ca- I mean the weather I mean when I was in when I was in Africa all the weather all the news actually CNN news only had two stories and they were the weather in uh, Georgia it was an ice storm at the time but simultaneously it was the flooding in Somerset where there even David Cameron the Prime Minister is in deep water you know it was all that kind of stuff you know and uh, Nick Clegg or somebody had uh, bought a new pair of Wellington boots and splashing around in Somerset. That was their big thing. So we knew we were going back into absolute misery. We leave Marrakesh uh, with not a breath of wind, not a cloud in the sky. And when we came into, you come out of the clouds, and you just never seem to come out of the clouds. You know that feeling? We just, oh, we're God. going down, we're going down, we must leave this still cloud. And suddenly the clouds break, and you realize you're literally above. You know, rooftops coming across Surrey into Gatwick, and uh, I could feel the plane moving in a oh, horrible way. Goodness. And also, I don't like how other people may be less um, bothered by this. I don't like it with wing, wings bend. I, I, they're not they're meant to bounce, but they are. I don't like and it with flexing. I don't. <laughs> so they're supposed to flex, aren't they? They flex. It look like a bird flapping. And we got within twenty feet of the ground and started that great roar of the engines, and it wallops upwards, but also lurches to the side oh. in a in a manner that's not being controlled by the aircraft. And the guy says, "Yeah," he said, "Yeah, we're on a go around for another try." And I thought this is terrible, but that's not what we're talking about. What I was going to say was, when we arrived, in sorry, Shetland, when we arrived in Shetland, Dave, we had the same experience, didn't oh, we? Oh, well, well, do you we, remember? Well, the, the worst bit oh for me was flying God. back to Aberdeen. It was just. Well, how big we were in a water? Was it twenty-five seat or thirty seat? Rotten business. Oh, and you're God. you're a fearless flyer. I don't I'm care not. I'm nervous. No, I don't I'm care nervous, but you know. But uh, it was so funny because the weather's been really f- shocking, hasn't it? Last month or so, Dave uh, viewers are, are constantly sending me things saying, trying to imagine all our pals. A lovely guy called Donald who ran the uh, festival, <laughs> and the idea of Donald and all the rest of the gang sort of hanging onto a you know possibly a tree trunk, just holding onto a tree, and, but horizontally flapping like off. a flag horizontally. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd, you'd be you'd be you'd be wake up in. Bagger, yeah. you know, you'd just be whisked across the North Sea. It's absolutely extraordinary. But so we, we went to that to do fun. a gig, didn't we? Mark? We did a gig. We did a gig. It was called uh, the entire history of rock and roll in sixty minutes. In sixty minutes. I think it went all right. So we were uh, we were on the same bill as David Knopfler from the Dire Straits, <laughs> Lem Sissé, the poet. I think was there. It was we a were. lovely gang. We were. And uh, three or four absolutely wonderful X Word subscribers uh, came up afterwards at the at the party. Fraser, honestly, the old eyes would have filled up. You honestly saying how much they missed Word. There was a, a girl came up and asked to have her picture taken nice. with us. She was in her 70s, Fraser. <laughs> yeah. I'm not exaggerating. If not in her 80s. You know, because if you do a gig on the Shetland Islands on a Saturday night, everybody comes. Everybody comes, because you're the biggest show in town. You're the only show in town. <laughs> So like that fish and chips, isn't it? We had a fantastic time. And then, well, then the, the four of us, Dave and, and, and his wife Alison, me and Claire, we went on a trip to Muckleflug. And Dave, actually, I never look at Dave's tweets because I'm not really, you know, not really into it. But I did when I got back. Have a look. Dave said, David tweeted very amusingly about Shetland. So I had a look at his tweets. And he said that he referred to Muckleflugger as... In fact, you've given me the credit for this joke. Because actually it was yours. You sexy muckle flugger. Which I thought was genuinely funny. And we went to a town called Twat, didn't we? We took a picture of ourselves. Hilarious, like yeah. two 15 year olds. But, but no, we walked, we went up to the very tip of, um, of Shetland. And this is, uh, this is pretty much, I think it's on a, the same latitude as Bergen, maybe above Bergen, it is. isn't it? And uh, so it's not far from the bottom of Iceland. You know, it's, it's, and it's British Britain, you know, it's very far north. It was fantastic. And the whole island has no trees. Uh, it has also, we'll be hearing a lot about it now because of the, the Viking expedition. Yes. Expedition. Exhibition, <laughs> sorry. Expedition. 
And uh, so, you know, it's still got Viking place names, isn't it? And, so what's uh, the Viking thing, Fraser? Because you were, you were wanting to go, weren't you, to the... Um, what yeah, do, I don't worry. Uphelliar or something? Uphelliar, yeah, it's a big fire eating. Takes place in January, January, I think. They just had it recently. Yeah. And they set fire to Viking boats, don't they, out, in, out at sea. It's yeah. absolutely extraordinary. Because we were staying in a B&B, very nice B&B in, in Lerwick, which is the... The main, the centre of Shetland, and um, and what was the name of our landlord and landlady? I'm trying to Keith, and, Kathy and Keith. That's right. That's, That's right. right. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Kathy and Keith. Or you know, it sounds as if I made them up. No, they're, they're no, Kathy and Keith. Yeah. And. Uh, and, and when you went in into the standard sort of entrance hall of a standard B and B, such as you might find anywhere, they had a coat rack in the hall, in which stuffed in the bottom he had his golf clubs. And his Viking axe. That's right, didn't his you? Viking axe. His yeah. Viking axe. And on the top of the hat stand was his Viking helmet, wasn't it? Yeah. Horned helmet. Yeah. Because it was kind of like, you know, it's like being at the round table or whatever up there. You know, you, you take part in the in the Viking activities. But don't you like the way the Vikings are being repositioned vigorously? Have you noticed this? There was an absolutely fantastic piece by Simon Armitage, you know, the poet, who I met at a literary festival not very longer. In fact, I wrote to him to say how good it was. And he wrote back, you know, it was just phenomenal. And it's this whole idea that when you were at school, if you're his age, which is pretty much my age, I think, you know, you were, the Vikings were presented as these kind of berserkers, <laughs> weren't they? These kind of, you know, these kind of booze-filled lunatics yes. with horns spreading out there, raping, looting, pillaging, <laughs> setting fire. With a maiden under each other. With a kind of kicking, <laughs> dragging somebody along by their braids, you know, <laughs> and clubbing to death small animals and just generally running amok, you know. And now we've been asked to think of the Vikings as very, very different creatures indeed, Almost on a par with the Romans, you know, the you know wonderful rich culture, uh, tremendous, um, you know, uh, their embroideries and their uh, their carvings, their chess pieces. What the Vikings have a Vikings? It kind of stands to reason, doesn't it? You know, that any 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 civilization that was kind of advanced enough to find its way over to Britain and invade us must have been more advanced than we were. completely. Otherwise, how we'd could have they been, possibly arrive we, there like a bunch of? We'd have been rowing our way. The world of crisps is no. Cruise. <laughs> I mean, the, what we discovered. <laughs> I was so. Uh, <laughs> I want a cheeseburger. And I just <laughs> with a works on the side. Oh, no, no. <laughs> no, no, but we've subsequently read. Sorry, I'm really boring about the Vikings. You ever read that the, the book with uh, uh, the, the, the cod? You read cod with the Vikings. The Vikings discover that they can go out across the, um, you know, the, the various, um, you know, ch- uh, channels in their boats all the way to Newfoundland and Greenland and stuff. Well, isn't and they, it? And they no, isn't it? The, bring it back. That's what powers the Viking Isn't, it, isn't it the Basques who first discover, make landfall in, in, in the New World, isn't it? Because the Basque fishermen just pursued the cod. And they kind of keep rowing, boys. Keep going. Follow that keep going. And the Vikings are going follow those bugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and next thing the they know, going, yeah. Christ, we shaking them off. Yeah, there's a place. Next thing they know, there's New York appearing on their right. And yes, all they've gone, they've just gone out for some fish. <laughs> for a fish this, supper. This, this is how it happens. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. no, we've got to, We've got to, We've been required to completely reappraise our Viking cousins, and uh, well, as they have done in Shetland anyway. Shetland have always been rooting for them, haven't they? Oh well, it, didn't it they say that? Wasn't there? there, was, there was English king who eventually gives. Oh, what happens, Dave? Can you remember? There's a Danish king. Can you remember? There was the dowry story. Oh, I can't remember. Seventeen twenty. Anyway, somebody sold the Shetland Islands back to the English when it was. Oh, I've forgotten that. The Word Podcast: Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. So my my eldest daughter, thirty one, married, gets invited to hen nights. Yeah. And the hen nights are, you know, they're big productions nowadays. They have to involve residential and you, you have to have a series of events and you have to stay in a hotel and all this. You you imagine know, T-shirts with funny names? Pink uh, cowboy hats, Dave. She ever wore a pink cowboy quite. hat? Bit more, girl, hat, bit more sophisticated than okay, that. Okay, that's good. But uh, so she gets asked, everybody gets allotted a job, you know. Where are we going for tea? Where are we going for dinner? How are we travelling in between? And, and because she works in the media and lives in London, as regarded as having a finger on the pulse, she has to sort out for them to get into a club, right? A kind of desirable, difficult-to-get-into club in the West End of London, which she regards as a bit tiresome, frankly, having to do this, but she, she does it, and she fixes it through a friend who used to work for this club. Can we get in there? How many of you are there? There's a dozen of us. 
can, will we be able to get in? Yes, it'll all be sorted. As long as it's so, not a hen night. <laughs> like Gavin and Stacey. <laughs> so they turn up, they have their meal and everything, and they turn up at this difficult-to-get-into club. And Claire's a bit nervous, you know, because you're the person charged with organising it. Is it all going to go wrong? Are you all going to get turned away? So she goes in the queue and says, you should have my name on the door and so forth. And they, they lift up the rope. Yes, ushered straight in. They don't have to pay, OK? They go straight in. They are seated at a reserved, you know, banquette near the door, yeah? They sit down, they're just settling down, and they're thinking, oh, what do we do now? We better order a drink. They just came the drinks menu out when there arrives on the table a huge great bucket of crushed ice into which is rammed an enormous bottle of vodka, right? Arranged, ringed around it are, are uh, you know, bottles of cranberry juice, orange juice, everything that you might conceivably wish to... Mixed mix with, it, yeah. with said vodka. She thought she said the corral <laughs> <laughs> So she's thinking, oh, okay, well, all right, fine. So all the, all the girls are absolutely thrilled. And so, you know, they don't even have to pour drinks because they have a waiter allotted to them at their table, probably with his shirt off or something, you know, and pouring these drinks for them. And Claire, after a while, she's thinking, oh, my God, what's going to happen here? We're going to get stung with a big big bill for this, you know, because she knows what club bills can be like. So she slopes off and she goes and talks to the maitre d'. She says, excuse me, you know, this table is a bit... I just wanted to work out what was happening with the drinks. And he, he said, oh, that's free. That's on the house, you know. So she goes back to the table, and as she returns to the table, they're taking away the empty vodka and replacing it with a Another magnum one. of champagne. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah? With sparklers in the top of it, yeah, because it's been opened already, in order to create as much of a kind of spectacle. Bring on the bill. The... <laughs> they're going to charge like a wounded bull, Dave. <laughs> and and they, this, this drink is then dispensed, you know, to everybody around the table. They leave the club... Two hours later, having not spent a penny. And what they are is effectively, they're the marketing budget. Twelve young women, yes, are seated in the most prominent place in the club, having a near the door, time. having a whale of a time. That's worth all the advertising that you might spend in so the evening. have it on us? Completely on them. And, of course, the thing that we couldn't help reflecting was uh, upon is what chance... Has my son? I was going to say sexist. I'm turning totally please, sexist. Please. It is. <laughs> if you and me and Fraser went in there, then <laughs> well, I'm sorry. It's sex with a bag of bag of chips. It's sex discrimination at its purest. It isn't is. It? It's just it's you know. Gross. Sometimes it works well for you, you know, and sometimes it doesn't. You know, what are the chances of my son getting in there with twelve of his mates? A getting in. And B having anything given to him free, nothing at all. The case, it's always been ladies free. Ladies free. Ladies free. Yeah, I suppose it has. I suppose it has. I suppose it has. But I think the thing that's changed is a really interesting piece in the New Yorker about this not long ago about about high end clubbing in Las Vegas, which is now all about you know uh, digital DJs and so forth. It's not about Sammy and Dean anymore, and and the amount of money that people will pay for champagne in those clubs is mind-boggling. And it works on the basis that it's competitive. That if somebody over there is seen to be buying one, you're not a man if you don't match them. Right. And, you know, get yourself into ten years' worth of debt in order to buy the same but thing. Exactly and so a huge spectacle is made of opening the bottle. You know? That is exactly the same. It's an experience I once had on a, 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 an aeroplane going to a, a dive. I was writing a dive story for a diving magazine. Uh, go to the Maldives, and I finished up. I think I was told you I finished up on a honeymoon flight, and I'm I'm the only person there who, literally, the only person I think who is not actually part of of a honeymoon couple. And in an immensely, I thought, unkind and exploitative way, the airlines sort of said, "We have bottles. It's all been a, all had some very exciting afternoons, and uh, we'll see a lot of confetti and hair and rice being brushed off, um, you know, um, jackets. Um, you know, we have some very nice chilled champagne available, and also half bottles, and we have a few." Cool, cool. 
and the voice of Trello. And I remember thinking, I really felt sorry for these people because they're always just curious. These people in their twenties and early thirties, you know, they haven't made a money. God's sake, they go to the Maldives. That's, that's not cheap, I can tell you. And now they want so somebody, of course, has gone. Yes, I'll have one yeah, of your finest. And then, start. and then you, you know, the girl, and they said, "Look, Derry, you know, we just got married. Is this what it's going to be like the rest of my life? You're going to be bloody, you know, hand in your pocket, you know, set your head. You know what I mean? Just are you going to buy a bottle of champagne or not? You know, and it's just awful. And the people buying a quarter bottle of champagne. It's so competitive, isn't it? This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.